Chapter 9 of The Bridge of History Over the Gulf of Time by Thomas Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Arch of William the Conqueror. What shall we name the eleventh century? Let us call it the Arch of William the Conqueror. It was in this century, you remember, that William, the Duke of Normandy, crossed the English Channel to get possession of our land, and that he fought the Battle of Hastings, where Harold was killed. Harold, the Saxon nobleman whom they had placed upon the throne on the death of King Edward the Confessor, Edward the Confessor, whose bones lie yonder in Westminster Abbey yet. You can go and put your hand on his tomb as I have done. On the 28th of December, 1865, Dean Stanley delivered a rich antiquarian discourse in the Abbey to celebrate the opening of the Abbey Church 800 years before. King Edward the Confessor had given much money towards the building, and wished to be present when the abbey church was open for worship, but fell sick and could not leave his bed. He died six days after, and then William of Normandy claimed the crown, and the struggle began, which ended in the victory of William. When William had held the scepter some years, he grew discontented with the taxes which he derived from the land. The land tax, you will observe, was the tax then. There were no great manufacturing industries of cotton or woolen or linen to tax, the land tax, I say, was the tax then. It is but a small tax compared with the other taxes now. When the landlords got the power of making taxes, they were sure to make the land tax as little as possible, you know, and so long as they keep the principal power, you may be sure the land tax will never be very large. William the Conqueror told his ministers that the land tax was not producing him the sum he needed for government, and they replied that they were sure the landholders could not afford to pay more tax. William said in return, he would know what the landholders could afford, for he would have a survey made of all the estates in the realm. William was a man who had a will of his own, and he carried out the threat to the utmost of his power. He could not get the survey made in Northumberland, Durham, Cumberland, or Westmoreland. The inhabitants of those countries were so unwilling to submit to him that he wasted their possessions with fire and sword, and yet could not subdue them. But the survey was made from the River Tees, the northern boundary of Yorkshire, to the English Channel and from the German Ocean to the Welsh border. And we have the survey still, the doomsday books, as they are called. Not mere copies of the books, but the original books, the leaves of which William the Conqueror turned over with his own fingers, a huge folio and a thick quarto, written on parchment in a kind of hodgepodge language, half Latin, half English, are still in our possession. A few years ago these volumes were photographed at the Government Photos and Conchograph Establishment at Southampton, and the doomsday book is now sold cheap, each country separately. Get hold of a copy for your own country, and you will see in it the names of your own city, ancient boroughs, towns, and villages, with an account of the woods and pastures and other possessions and the names of the persons who held them. But take care to mark as you go along how the book tells you that such a bishop had so many carocates or hides of land in such a parish, and that the priest's name in such a village is so-and-so. The fact of the existence of Christianity as the professed and established religion of the land is registered in the doomsday books. The power of the papal see was great in this century, for Hildebrand, or Gregory VII, was pope. Yet Gregory could not get his own way in England. Gregory had blessed the banner which had been woven by the Norman ladies, and which had been used by William at the Battle of Hastings. And Pope Gregory sent to tell the conqueror that not his sword and valor, and the swords and valor of the Norman host who had won the battle. The victory was solely attributed to the papal blessing he stowed on the banner. The argument at the end was, 
that William must compel his people to pay Peter Pence, and must not dare to appoint any of the bishops, since the Pope meant to appoint them all himself. But William snapped his fingers even at the potent Hildebrand, and did not appoint the bishops. There were martyrs among the opposers of popish doctrine and popish practices in this age, in several parts of Germany, and heretics were burned at Orléans in France, and God's lowly people were suffered for the pure faith in Christ in the valleys of Piedmont. But we must not delay to give the recital. One book produced in this age should also be mentioned, the Cor Deus Homo, or Wherefore God Became Man, of Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, in the reign of William Rufus, a most remarkable book on the atonement of Christ to have been produced at such a time. But we must keep close to our inquiry. Where did the Christianity come from, whose doctrines Anselm sought to expound, for which the Daudois suffered, and which has found a register of its existence in the Doomsday Books? The bishops and priests mentioned in these books were teaching the English people, and the English people believed that Jesus of Nazareth had lived on this earth, taught his great doctrines, wrought his miracles, was crucified, and rose again from the dead. How came the bishops and priests to be teaching, and the people to be believing that these were facts? Was there no foundation in fact either for the teaching or for the belief? Did Jesus never exist on the earth? Is what we call the gospel history all derived from the ancient fable of the sun? Let us step on again, over our bridge of history from the eleventh century, or Arch of William the Conqueror, to the arch preceding it, and see if we find Christianity there. End of chapter 9